In chapter 10, we had this vision of a mighty angel who is described in ways that make it clear that uh, John is talking about Jesus himself. The angel gives John a scroll and tells him to eat it. The scroll is sweet to taste but turns sour or bitter in his stomach. What we saw was that none of this, like much of the book, is supposed to be understood literally, but that eating the scroll was a metaphor for actively consuming God's word and the message within it. Feasting on his word until we know it deeper and can share its message more efficiently. But the reality is also revealed that the message of the gospel is not an easy one. It will be sweet to some, but sour to others. Ultimately, the message we took from chapter 10 is that each one of us that would call themselves a Christian are called to be a prophet. That is, we are called to reveal that mystery of God, Jesus Christ, to the whole world through our words and through our actions. So this morning we come on to the second half of the interlude in chapter 11. I was hoping to do all of chapter 11 this morning, but uh, yep, we would be here for quite a bit longer if we did that, so we're just going up to verse 14 this morning. Um, when we started this book, I think mean, we'd all agree that we'd consider Revelation to be one of the most challenging and difficult books in the Bible to understand. But hopefully over the last year, it has become slightly less puzzling. Maybe it's become more puzzling if it has apologised. But our passage today in chapter 11 is probably the most puzzling of the whole book. It's saturated in so many Old Testament references with Zechariah, Daniel, Exodus, 1 Kings, Ezekiel. They're all found in these 14 verses that we're going to look at this morning. But there's also the introduction of John's use of numerical symbolism in this book as well that he kind of takes from Daniel's visions back in his book. And that adds even more complexity to it. I'm not going to go over every single detail, particularly the number stuff, because it's more like a maths lesson, and um, I just don't think we necessarily we would be here for a long time. And there's some other bits and pieces. If there's anything in there that we don't cover this morning that you know strikes you and you think well, I'd like to know what that means, ask me. I can't tell you I'm going to know the answer, but um, we can maybe have a chat about it and see if we can come to a conclusion. Not surprisingly, people have long disagreed over the meaning of this passage, like a lot of the whole of Revelation. So what are we to make of it? Well, uh, I've said this a couple of times as we've made our way through the book. What I'm going to present is, is my own views that I've come to through studying the text myself and reading through the work of various scholars. And you don't have to agree with me, but whether you do or not, please spend time outside of this 25-minute or so long sermon. Read it through more, study it more for yourself. Read the passage over, pray over it. Um, but also look to other sources. You, know, you don't have to be reading massive books, but there are plenty of other good accessible books and other sources online. Be careful online because there's a lot of weird stuff online as well. But, um, but yeah, there is a lot of good sources. And if you want directing to any good sources, come see me. So um, what is it all about? It's not working. I didn't touch it. So anyway, what is it all about? In summary, John is told to measure the temple before we hear about two witnesses emerging who do great and strange deeds before being killed, lying unburied in the streets and then being raised to new life and exalted to heaven. The whole tone of the passage is very different to the surrounding chapters. And instead of reading about the big picture scenes of terrifying horsemen, mutant locusts, natural disasters that we've come across so far, thanks, we are instead in the middle of what seems to be like a short, strange story about two specific individuals planted in the middle of the action. And that's what it looks like on first appearance. But what does it actually all mean? 
How does it fit in with the rest of the book and how does it take John's vision, how does it take John's vision forward? Firstly, the measuring of the temple. So in Ezekiel 40 to 42, we read about an angelic figure who sounds quite similar to our figure in chapter 10 that measures out the temple with a measuring reed. As we've seen before, the temple was considered to be God's dwelling place here on earth. But the temple measured out in Ezekiel is not speaking of the temple in Jerusalem. It is not to be understood as a physical building, but rather it is looking forward to a time when God's dwelling place on earth will extend far beyond the borders of man-made, a man-made building in one city. Likewise, here in Revelation 11, the temple that John is instructed to measure is not the physical temple of Jerusalem, but a temple in a metaphorical sense. For a start, the temple of Jerusalem had already been destroyed by this point. It was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans, and John's writing is much later. Um, that was happened during the, the Jewish uprising. Instead, what we, we, sorry, we've already had clues, or been given clues, to what, or rather who, this temple is. In chapter 3, verse 12, we read about how Jesus promised the readers of the letter to Philadelphia that those who conquered would be made a pillar of the temple of God. Now, obviously, Jesus isn't saying that they're going to be made into stone and they're going to support a physical building. He's saying that they're part of this temple. And when we look elsewhere in the New Testament, we are given further clues to this temple's identity. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells inside you? Or Ephesians 2, we read about how Jesus is the cornerstone around whom the whole family of God is built into a holy temple of God. As we've seen before, the whole Bible is a story of God making his dwelling place with his creation. Firstly, in the garden, then in the tabernacle, then in the temple, then in Jesus himself, before his dwelling place is in each and every believer on earth, a movable worldwide temple. All of it is building up to the final crescendo of the final and ultimate temple, God making his dwelling place with all of his creation at the coming of the new heavens and new earth. And so this temple that John is called to measure is not a building built by human hands, but the body of Christ, his believers. In other words, it's the same thing that we saw described in the first interlude in chapter 7, the multitude that no one could number. Again, the book takes a look at the same thing, but from a different perspective. In chapter 7, God's people were to be marked out with the seal of God. Here in chapter 11, they are to be measured out so that they are marked for protection from ultimate harm. In other words, from spiritual death. However, although they are to be protected from that ultimate of harms, they are still left open to other attack and harm. It says here that the outer court of the temple in Jerusalem was known um, as the, the court of the Gentiles. It was the closest that a Gentile could get to the Holy of Holies in that temple. And it is the nations or Gentiles in this passage that will trample over this outer court. Jesus uses the same language in Luke 21:24 when he predicted the destruction of the temple, saying that Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. This parallels Matthew's vision, uh, sorry, version of the same event, where Jesus also includes a reference to Daniel 9, where he says, When you see in the standing place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. In the passage that Jesus refers to, Daniel writes that this would happen in the middle of 1-7. 
How long are the people in this chapter in Revelation, how long are the people allowed to trample on the outer court of this temple? It says 42 months. 42 months is what? It's three and a half years. What is three and a half years? The middle of one seven. As we've seen before many times, the number seven is the figure of completeness and perfection. So three and a half, sorry, three and a half is a symbolic imperfection. The same language of imperfection is used throughout this chapter. Three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days. They all equate to the same period of time. This is, there's a further allusion uh, to another Old Testament, Old, Old Testament story here too. The Israelites spent 40 years wandering in the desert, didn't they, after their disobedience to God. And during that time, they camped at 42 different places, according to Numbers 33. So John is relating this time of the Gentiles and their trampling with the suffering of the half-week of Daniel, but also with the wilderness wanderings which followed the plagues and deliverance of the Passover. The point here, in all of that complexity, is to contrast the perfect future that we will soon come to read about with this incomplete time of suffering. told you it was confusing. But the point we need to understand from these opening verses is that, like chapter 7, God's people will be set aside and protected, but they will still face suffering. For John's first readers, that suffering was coming at the hands of a Gentile people who had metaphorically trampled on them through persecution, the Roman Empire. But as Jesus foretold, the time of these Gentiles will come to an end. This imperfect period of time is limited. And we're then introduced to these two new characters, these two witnesses who we are told will prophesy for 1,260 days, or again, three and a half years. I don't know why I can just use the same thing the whole way through here. To, but the, uh, there's obviously a reason for it. Um, so it's the same time, the same period of persecution and suffering. But who are these two witnesses? Well, in the Bible, the agreed testimony of two witnesses is necessary for something to be considered true. And so having these two witnesses here emphasises the veracity, the truthfulness of what they proclaim and prophesy. They are described as the two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord. The two olive trees recalls the anointed priest and king who will truly lead God's people in Zechariah chapter 4. In Zechariah's immediate context, those two people were Joshua and Zerubbabel. They worked for the good of a city trampled on by a Gentile army, enemy. But like much of scripture, it also looks ahead to another priest and king, Jesus, the perfect prophet, priest and king in one person. But also earlier in Revelation, in the praise around the throne in chapter 5, we read that all the saints, every believer of Jesus, is a king and a priest to our God. The witnesses are also referred to as the two lampstands. And again, as we saw earlier in the book, the communities of Christian believers are called the lampstands. And so in these opening verses of chapter 11, John amalgamates all of these different images into one to refer to the faithful people of God, using references from all over scripture. That is, in my view, who these two witnesses are, those who faithfully follow the Lamb. They're not two specific individual people. They are all those who faithfully follow Jesus. And I think John also has two other Old Testament characters in mind as he writes, and his brain is so saturated with, with, the, with Scripture, he knew it so well. And I think that is of Moses and Elijah. 
Moses, the great leader and king-like character of Israel, and Elijah, the priestly prophet. Moses, who stood up to Pharaoh, the pagan Gentile king of Egypt, who trampled God's people and who demonstrated God's power through the plagues that, as we've already seen, are already echoed in this book. And then Elijah, who stood up to Ahab, another pagan king, who trampled God's people by leading them away from him. And Elijah, who demonstrated God's power by successfully praying for drought and then calling down fire from heaven. John doesn't think that Moses and Elijah were literally going to return, but instead is saying that the prophetic witness of, these, of the two witnesses in this, uh, in this passage, the Church of Christ, will instead have the same sort of power to stand up to those who seek to trample over God's people and that God will work power, powerfully through them. And those allusions to Moses and Elijah, they flow through the following verses. It says about fire coming from their mouth. It doesn't refer to literal fire, but instead to the power of the Holy Spirit through their words uh, of prayer and prophecy. Those prayers have the power, like Elijah, as it says here, to shut up the sky that no rain may fall, exactly as Elijah did, and to turn waters into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague, just like Moses did. Saying the words of God's people are a mighty power that God works through to strike people to their very core. So to make it clear, these two witnesses are a representation of the trustworthy, powerful witness of the Christian church. When you get to this point, it sounds like the church of Christ is pretty unstoppable, doesn't it? The power of their prayer and prophesying is mighty. However, the story then takes what seems to be a slightly less positive direction. At the end of this period of testifying to God's will and purposes, a beast arises from the bottomless pit or the abyss that we heard about in chapter 9, and it makes war on them, it conquers them, and it kills them. Their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city that is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt. We haven't met this monster yet, nor have we yet discovered this great city, but we've had clues about it all the way through. And John will make it clear in the several chapters that follow in the second half of the book. There we will learn that the beast of the... Sorry, that the beast is the might of pagan empire, which at the time of writing was the empire of Rome, and the great city was the city of Rome itself. But it is any and all human empire that is founded not on the kingdom of God, but on the kingdom of man's greed and selfishness. It is this beast that will rise up to conquer, uh, war against, and kill the two witnesses. The faithful church of Christ will suffer intense persecution at the hands of this beast. And we're going to hear much more about that in the coming chapters. The point that John's readers need to know is that even by being faithful to their witness of the gospel message, they are not immune from suffering and even death. Now first, this might seem to contradict the message that has come before about how God's people will be sealed and protected. But when we look back, we can see that this is the story that we have seen throughout the whole book. Remember back to chapter 1, we heard about Antipas, the faithful witness. What happened to him? He was martyred, he was killed. And then the great multitude who worship God in chapter 7 are said to have come through the great suffering or tribulation rather than avoiding it. As I said last time, Revelation doesn't sugarcoat the Christian life. Instead, it gives us plenty of warning of the threat that we will face when we live authentic, faithful lives as Jesus' disciples. But where it wants to encourage and strengthen our resolve is by assuring us that the threat that we face is temporary. 
just like the kingdom of Rome or any other human kingdom that persecutes or threatens Christians. The hope behind the whole book and behind the gospel message as a whole is that our protection is an eternal one. We are sealed, not against the difficulty of this life, but against the ultimate suffering in the next. That ultimate suffering is an absence from God's presence. We are protected from that. In fact, what this chapter tells us is that it's actually through the suffering and death of God's people that the world will ultimately be brought to glorify God. In a parallel to Jesus' own death and resurrection, this chapter goes on to speak about the way that the world will celebrate the death of the martyrs or victory over the church. And we see that even today. The witness of the two prophets is said to be a torment to all those who dwell on the earth. Remember we've seen before that those who dwell on the earth are anyone that stand against God. The message of the gospel is sour or bitter to those who are against it. And we saw that in chapter 10. The secular world would long to see the Christian church die away. And there are other faiths and belief systems that would glorify in the end of Christianity and its message about this Jesus. In many countries, that literally looks like dead bodies of believers in the streets that are described here. But as he did with Jesus, we see how God acts just when it's not expected. In an allusion to the value of bones in Ezekiel 37, where God brings sinew and flesh and breath to lifeless bones, he brought life to a dead Jesus, and here to the dead bodies of the Christian faithful. Notice how the three and a half years earlier in the chapter are now three and a half days to make it clear that this is linked with Jesus' own resurrection three days after his death. For three days, the Jewish leaders celebrated the death of this troublemaker Jesus until God put an end to their celebrations by raising him to life. This passage looks forward to the day when every faithful follower of Jesus is raised to a new life as God acts to bring down the curtain on the apparent victory of all who would stand against him and his people. This three and a half year, three and a half day, 42 month, 1260 days is in my opinion not to be understood as a literal period of time but instead the period of time that God's people will suffer persecution and death. Here's the period of time that Daniel calls the tribulation. It's a period of the end times that we have seen is the time from Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension, all the way through to his return. It's a period of time that the seven churches in the book are living in, and it's a period of time that we are living in. It is the imperfect period where Christians are called to be the two witnesses, even if it means suffering and death at the hands of whatever evil empire, before the perfect time when Christ returns and God breathes new life into the bodies of his faithful dead at the culmination of his kingdom. This is the end of the story in the middle of the book. The passage here is telling the same story as the end of the book when the new heavens and new earth arrive and God dwells with his creation forever. It's just being told from a different perspective. As we've seen a number of times, this book and John's vision isn't being told in a chronological manner telling the story as it will unfold in a linear fashion, but instead it's coming to us from different viewpoints, revealing God's plan and purposes for his people and his creation as seen from different angles. I guess we could think of it a little like the the four Gospels. They all tell the same story, don't they? The story of Jesus, but from different perspectives. 
the rest of the book will take us deeper into what we already know from the opening 11 chapters and the beast and great city that we're only just hearing about will be revealed in more detail. But first we have this voice that calls from heaven saying, come up here. And they went up in a cloud, to heaven in a cloud. This is Jesus calling his faithful followers, those same people that we saw stood around the throne in worship in chapter 7 into his perfect kingdom. But then also we see a picture of the ultimate mercy of God. As the enemies of God witnessed the vindication of his faithful people in their resurrection, we read that there was a great earthquake. And we saw before that this, this is symbolic for God's judgment on the earth when we hear about an earthquake. And whilst we read that 7,000 people are killed in that earthquake, again it's a symbolic number, we see that the rest were terrified and gave glory to God in heaven. Now, when we read of people giving glory to God in the Bible, it isn't just describing a momentary or a grudging acknowledgement of God, but it's a true and penitent turning to him. It's repentance. In other words, the faithful witness of of Jesus' followers will succeed where the plagues failed. Remember that at the end of the plagues, people still didn't repent, did they? But here we see this vast number turned to God in true repentance. This is how the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of the Lord and his Messiah that we read about in the blowing of the seventh trumpet in the final passage of this chapter. In this most complex of chapters is one of the most important and central statements of what God wants to say through John to those seven churches and to us today. We've seen the Lamb open the seals on the scroll and all sorts of terrifying things have happened as he has done so. We've seen the trumpets being blown and terrors of all different sorts have emerged. Still the world refuses to repent. But here in this interlude, the scroll has been passed to John and therefore passed to the whole church. In chapter 10 we see, it's almost like the baton being handed on from Jesus to us. In chapter 10 we see that John is told to prophesy, to proclaim the message of the mystery of God, the gospel of Jesus. And then here in chapter 11 we see that the two witnesses, the whole body of Christian believers, are to carry that same message to the whole world, even if it means intense suffering and death. And this is how the kingdom of God, already spoken of in chapters 4 and 5, is to become a reality on earth as in heaven. It's easy to miss, but there is powerful symbolism in the penultimate verse of this first passage of chapter 11, in verse 13. Cast your mind back in the Old Testament to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18. God would have spared those cities if he found ten righteous people amongst their number. Now, however, only one-tenth of the wicked city will fall. The other nine-tenths will be saved. In the Old Testament prophets, it was usually only a tenth that would stay and remain faithful to God, whereas the rest turned to evil. But here the numbers are inverted, and a tenth are destroyed whilst the majority come to faith. When God judged Israel through Elijah, only 7,000 were left who hadn't bowed the knee to Baal. Whereas here, it is only 7,000 who are killed whilst the majority are rescued. It's all flipped on its head. God God, God is a God of judgment and justice, but he is also a God of mercy. And we see here his heart for the world. He grieves over the rebellion and corruption of the world, but he is determined to rescue and restore it. And he does so through the faithful life and death of his son, the Lamb, but also now through the faithful life and death of the Lamb's followers. The witness, death and vindication of the community of faith 
helps accomplish what judgment alone does not do. Through these faithful believers, people of many tribes and nations are brought to fear God and give him glory. Now this doesn't for a minute suggest that God fails at first, so must do something different instead. Instead it emphasises his desire to use people, use his people, to bring about his kingdom here on earth. As we can see from the very first pages of our Bible, as we see throughout the big story of the Bible, God's will is to work in partnership with his creation. He could do it alone if he wanted to, but he wanted to use Adam. He wanted to use Noah. He wanted to use Abraham, Moses, Joseph, David, his prophets, his disciples, and he wants to use you and he wants to use me. We are very near the halfway point of this book, you might be pleased to hear We just have this celebratory sounding of the seventh trumpet to come. There the story comes to a close from one perspective. And as we enter chapters 12 to 22, we will see the same story unfold and come out in a different way, in a different light. And it's in light of what we already know from chapters 1 to 11 that we can understand it. Next week we will finish the chapter and recap the story so far. And then on the next occasion we meet uh, with Revelation we will read through the remaining chapters together. You hope you remember when we first started this, we read chapters 1 to 11 in church together. And hopefully as we read that second half of the book together, chapters 12 to 22, what we've looked at in chapters 1 to 11 will start springing to our minds. You know, we, hopefully it will be a little bit more, it'll make a bit more sense as we go through, hopefully. But for now, what is the message of this passage for us today? Many of you have probably heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German theologian who lived during the reign of the Third Reich. And he was imprisoned and executed for his involvement in trying to bring Hitler down. His book, The Cost of Discipleship, was based around Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. And in it, he sought to demonstrate that the life of a true Christian is not supposed to be an easy one. It should cost us. And it should cost us greatly in different ways. He warned against what he called cheap grace, which he defined in this way. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. Instead, he says costly grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God cannot be cheap. Sorry, what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. If nothing else, this passage in Revelation shares that same message. It is costly because it means the world might hate us. But it is grace because we get to share the most incredible news with them. It is costly because it may cost our very lives. But it is grace because God promises to breathe new eternal life into our dead bodies. Bonhoeffer also wrote, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. For some Christians, that may literally mean come and die. But for all Christians, it is a call to die to self 
to take up his cross and live the same self-sacrificial, loving life that Christ himself led. That's what it means to follow him. So this morning, let's ask ourselves, am I willing to come and die for Christ?